Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, and we have a very important guest with us today. From Montana, we have Mr. Ryan Bussey. He is the author of the book, Gunfight. This is a book that I would encourage everyone to read. We're going to dive into the topic of guns and gun law in America. Now, if you're tuning in today to hear someone opine that the Democrats and the political left want to take away all the private firearms and destroy the Second Amendment, or you want to hear that the Republicans and the political right are in favor of slaughtering innocents, then you're not going to like this episode at all. And that's exactly why you should be listening to this, because the partisan fight is getting us no place. The best voice on this topic, Mr. Ryan Bussey, is with us today. He is the author of Gunfight. He is an avid hunter, outdoorsman, and conservationist. And really importantly, he built a very successful career in the firearms industry. First person that I've had the pleasure of reading about who's actually been there meeting with the NRA inside how guns are manufactured, sent into the distribution system, ultimately end up with the retailer. Today's episode's first part of a two-part series. Next week, we're going to talk about the idea of graduated licensing and other policies for guns. But today, for an insider's look at guns and gun laws in America, we welcome from Montana, Mr. Ryan Bussey. Ryan, welcome to the Common Bridge. Hey, thanks for having me on, Rich. I appreciate the kind words about the book and um, agree with you. It's an important topic. uh, As we chatted about before we hopped on the air here, Uh, it's a book you know, I didn't ever dream of writing this book. It's not something I wished I had to write, but it's something I felt I had to write. So um, here we are. Well, thank you for writing it and being bold. And again, as I encourage everyone to please read the book, Gunfight. I picked up my copy on Amazon. You're going to read things about the gun industry that you just can't get anyplace else. And frankly, some great personal sacrifice that Mr. Bussey made. But Ryan, tell us a little bit about yourself. What were your early days like and what was your career arc like and a little bit about what you're up to today? Sure. Um, and I detail a fair amount of this in the beginning of the book. And as you know, um, it, it, it's it's kind of a complex story, but I grew up on a rural ranch, uh, you know, where most of the best days of my life were spent with guns, hunting and shooting with my grandfather, my father, my brother, my friends. And so for me, guns, even as a very young kid, the association with guns was a positive thing, not a negative thing. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't the sort of thing that you wore on your sleeve. It wasn't your identity. Um, gun responsibility was something that was drilled into every kid that I knew, certainly including myself and my brother. Um, you didn't do irresponsible things. You damn sure didn't march into towns with AR-15s to intimidate people like we've seen 
in this country in the last few years. You didn't have bumper stickers and hats and, you know, celebrate armed intimidation. But we did, um, we did participate in hunting. We did a lot of shooting. Um, I shot trap, you know, trap and skeet competitions and things like that. Very wholesome. I, uh, I graduated from college. I was getting ready to go to law school, thought better of that. Um, my wife still tells me I would be an excellent lawyer and I, I don't think she means that as a compliment, but, um, <laughs> I, I, I ended up, um, I ended up getting into the sporting goods industry because I thought, Hey, like, this is a thing I love. Um, it'll be like a dream for me. I'll, I'll get to be around the things that I love to do. And I liken it, I played baseball as a kid and I, I liken it to like somebody making it into the major leagues, you know, like, Holy smokes, I get paid to do this. That's a bit what it felt, felt like to me at the beginning. And I, I ended up, um, getting a, a job, became a sales executive at a very small fledgling firearms company named Kimber. And we ended up building it into one of the largest in the country. And in the first part of my career, all of that responsibility, imperfect as it was, but responsibility and norms of behavior were really evident. Um, that was 1995, um, was really evident inside the industry. Um, the industry didn't allow AR-15s or tactical gear to even be displayed in the main parts of its own trade shows. Again, not laws. Those were voluntary prohibitions. Those were social norms of behavior. Um, much like our politics back then had some imperfect but very obvious norms uh, of behavior, so too did the firearms industry. And over time, I saw that breakdown as the NRA figured out that fear and hatred and conspiracy combined with firearms could drive political outcomes. Um, and so I saw the industry change around me and I ended up, you know, the last uh, over half, two thirds of my career trying to hold to the dream that I had as a kid of the sorts of guns and gun ownership and gun culture that I thought was healthy and responsible versus what was being built by the industry. And you were very successful with that. Indeed, you were nominated as the gun industry's person of the year. So yeah. you were recognized by people as being very capable and and very knowledgeable. So it was, it was, a, it was a great career. It's not like there was a falling out. And I could sense the reluctance in your book and the despair, indeed, about the changes that you witnessed. Yeah, you know, I... Um... I was like anybody else who uh, wanted to drive a business and be successful. Um, and I, and I feel like we did that. I was, I was proud of what we did. And at the same time, you know, you're, you're not exactly producing bubble gum. Like it's, it's an important, immensely impactful freedom, the, the freedom, the second amendment freedom to own firearms. And so I always had in the back of my mind, this idea that like, we can do this, but you can't do it unfettered. You can't do it unchecked. Mm -hmm. You can't do it without responsibility. You have to have a balance between this right that, let's face it, it's built around taking a life away. That's that's what a gun is. Now, we target shoot with them and we defend ourselves with them and we hunt with them. But in the end, it's a tool meant to efficiently take a life. And um, that sort of immense freedom and responsibility must be counterbalanced with an immense responsibility and set of social norms. And I always felt that in the back of my head. And when, when that all started to break down around me, um, it was a bit, it, it was a bit of despair. And I kind of felt like I was the last man standing, like, because eventually 
almost every company in the industry built and sold AR-15s. I never did. Our, my company never did. I fought like crazy to keep it from happening. Many of the people who I got into the industry with um, ended up embarking on very, in my opinion, very irresponsible advertising campaigns and um, marketing schemes. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, I kind of like felt like I was standing around looking at all these people saying, hey, um, remember, we agreed we weren't going to do this, right? Like this is about, and you know, people looked at me like I had eight heads, you know, or something. So um, yeah, it was, it was a, kind of a tough existence. I was horrified in my examination of gun laws over the years and gun practices that there were pop-up ads in first-person shooter games for semi-automatic rifles and large magazines. And one of the things that you set out in your book, you talk about the quality versus the quantity of guns in America. I'm old enough to remember when the scourge was Saturday night specials, cheap handguns, and trying to get those out of circulation. And you talk about defensive versus offensive guns. And I've never heard that division like that. Is there an easy way to explain to our listeners, our viewers, and our readers the difference between a defensive versus an offensive firearm? Well, the simple question is no, there is no easy way because a lot, like a lot of things, the definitions kind of blur as you you get around the lines um, and the edges. I will say though, I kind of let the industry do that for itself. And and here's an example. Up until about 2006 or 2007, the industry itself would not allow anything that was deemed or marketed tactical, that word tactical, would not allow it in its own trade shows. You had to have either military credentials or be a credentialed law enforcement officer to get back in this kind of cordoned off, you know, curtained off place where the tactical gear was. And the reason that is, is because tactical, the word tactical, to everybody that I know means planned offensive military action. In other words, if you have a tactical gun, that means you're, you're planning to go do something offensive. You're going to attack, you're going to um, barge into a building and take back hostages. So it's not a defensive thing. You're not at home watching TV and a robber breaks in, you grab your tactical gun that you, you have a defensive gun for that. Now, again, the definitions blur around the edges, but to fast forward to where we are today, um, Today, if you walk into the industry trade show, it's 85, 90% tactical. The word tactical is everywhere. The t- it, everybody discusses how hot the quote-unquote tactical market is. There are tactical magazines, tactical guns, tactical scopes, tactical pants, tactical boots, literally even tactical underwear. Everything is tactical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we have done is marketed to a group of people, largely young men in the United States where the industry used to know that it was irresponsible to do those things because that, that not marketing tactical gear, that wasn't a law, right? That was a voluntary Mm -hmm. prohibition to today where we are just 15, 18 years later, everything is tactical. So we are essentially telling everybody that you need to buy these things for planned offensive military operation. Now, what, what sort of gear is tactical? And these are just sort of broad, soft around the edges definitions. They tend to be higher capacity. They tend to be higher power, longer distance, these sorts of things. A self-defense firearm, the sort that I sold and the sort that, you know, everybody, a lot of people still consider effective self-defense firearms, they're seven, eight, nine, six capacity, a tactical, um, a uh 
polymer frame tactical pistol might be 20, 22, 25 uh, round capacity. Um, and so there is no easy definition, but I just, if, if the industry itself markets the things as tactical, then I guess I take that definition from them. And and you you write about the market being on the customer side being couch commandos. I love that term, by the way, in a sad way. And also that you, you talk about emotions and guns really being dangerous. And I know that you know my experience and talking with people that if you have more untrained people out there, it's more apt that somebody's going to pull a gun at the first provocation in anticipation that someone else might do it. And I've been in places in Texas, I'm trying to get a chicken dinner and there's 10 guys walking around outside on a suburban street. They're strapped up with sidearms and with semi-automatic rifles. And even in my home state of Michigan, we had guys standing around the Capitol ground you know, with AR-15 style firearms. And I remember when that occurred, I'm like, where's the safe shot? Who is it you're going to, to be shooting? And by the way, stupid guy carrying that gun, the state police sharpshooters that are on the buildings have you in their sights first if anything breaks out. So tell me, did your customer change over your time in the gun industry? Was there a thing as the couch commando or people that are just over emotional about it? Yeah, it definitely did change over time. I think that the firearms industry played a role in changing the customer and sort of the thesis of my book is that this, the radicalized politics that have divided our families and our workplaces and our entire nation um, really have their genesis in guns and gun, the all or nothing ism of guns and gun politics. And I think this, when, when, when the debate about policies breaks down to, as, as you mentioned in your lead in, to this segment when it breaks down to this, they're going to take everything or um, we're going to have everything like this, this sort of black, white, all or nothing, you know, on a scale of one to 10, 10 or one, like that's not, that's not how a democracy works. And so you have the, the industry mostly led by the NRA over time, slowly realized that this all or nothing um, extremism and creating fear around it and conspiracy around it to basically tell people that um, the evil libs are going to take their rights from them. Now you have a group of people like those like those guys in Michigan that march into the Capitol screaming at lawmakers with um, high cap high cap magazines and you know AR fifteens. Um, they believe that they are soldiers in an existential war, and that they you know, there is no responsibility in that. There is only the thought that they must march in. In fact, they are being told that they must tactically be ready to own those guns to kill fellow citizens. That's why they're there. That's why they're trying to intimidate people because no responsible gun owner marches to a, you know, a a Capitol square um, (laughs) with loaded AR-15s. That's like, that is, that violates every single rule of responsible firearms ownership anybody was ever taught, period, end of story. It's not defensible. Um, and yet they're doing it. And is the right or the firearms industry uttering one single word of criticism? No, they're not. That should tell you how dangerous. I think, I think um, that's akin to like taking a bunch of lit matches and waving them around a bunch of open gasoline. It's not like it's way too dangerous to do that. Um, but it's because it is because the, the views 
um, about why Americans can and should own guns have been changed by the NRA and by the industry from one where we have the right to own guns for hunting and self-defense to ones where you must own a gun to be ready to kill people in an armed civil war. Um, and and that that's a frightening place to be. I want to come back to the Second Amendment and some of the broader issues a little bit later. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is that not only did you have your perspective, but you drew the basis. And I, I'm a numbers guy. Okay. So I love the statistics. When you started your career, national gun sales were about 350,000 units per month. Yeah. But by the end of 2020, now more than 1.8 million a month. And fascinating statistic, 8 million new gun owners. And I can just kind of connect those dots. New gun owners, sales of very powerful, high-capacity rifles. We've got a lot of inexperienced people out there owning these things. And then the, the way that you did the timeline, and it was throughout the book, but after 9-11 and the Iraq-Afghanistan wars, Gun sales went from about five to eight million a year to thirteen to sixteen million. When President Obama was elected, sales went up fifty-two percent, forty-three million units. He would have sold more if the backlog could have been fulfilled. Was that was the other thing that you, you couldn't make them fast enough? That's correct. And then after the tragedy at Sandy Hook, there were talk of restrictions. Gun sales went up to 80,000 a day, and high-capacity magazines were selling out. And so when President Obama left office, more than 101 million guns had been sold. It was a 75% increase over the Bush 43 administration. And then paradoxically, after the election of Donald Trump, the Trump slump, 17% decrease. As you were in the middle of this industry experiencing these political and social changes, sales of guns go up, sales of guns go down. And I know there are people that said President Obama was the best gun salesman ever. What were you thinking and what was the reaction of some of your peers in the industry during this time? Well, I guess the most um, eloquent, simplest term for what I was thinking was I effing hated it. Um, and I hated it because of the irrationality of it. And I think it's, I, you know, you, you led into this and I'll, and I'll, I'll get to the core of your question, but I think a very interesting thing is that, um, folks who observe the firearms industry and, and the firearm situation in America often, um, accuse the firearms industry and the NRA of either wanting or propagating, you know, inner city violence or suicide or things that happen with guns. Um, and I'm here to tell you, they don't, it's not that they want that to happen, but, it, but the truth may almost be worse. Those are just sort of like unfortunate byproducts of what the, of what the industry does, because what the industry and what the NRA want are political power and money. Okay. And so the, what, whatever the unfortunate, it's like, I mean, think of it this way. I want lots of fast cars. And if people die in traffic accidents, yeah, well, no. So what? That's kind of, that's kind of the way it is. And so that what disgusted me and what pissed me off was that, you know, I wanted to do well by doing the things that a company has to do well, building a good product, marketing correctly, 
having a good sales team, um, you know, built, doing something I could be proud of. And instead of that, so much of our success or failure failure was driven by these irrational. I mean, whether whether the guy leading the presidential races race was black or white, that drove sales. Whether um, kids in a school were murdered with an AR-15 or not, that drove sales. Whether um, a crazy orange man with a strange come over from Florida was elected president or not, that drove sales. You see, none of these things are things that, that you really can be taught in Harvard Business School or be proud of as to how how um, proficient you are at, at, you know, doing your job. And so I kind of felt like for me, um, it pulled that, you know, pride, pride of professional achievement away and just sort of handed it off to these ancillary irrational events that, that drove me nuts. And of course the irrationality led to, in some cases, very frightening outcomes of, um, increased polarization, radicalization, and lots of these people that were now very pissed off, um, irrationally so because of the conspiracies driven by the NRA having guns. Just not, a, you know, in in the soup, in the national soup, it's just not a good taste, you know. The way that you portrayed the NRA and the role of single-issue voters, I think, was very clear and very articulate. And as I pondered, a lot of what you reported in your book, I'm like, it's almost like a chicken and egg. I don't know what came first, that single issue voter or the NRA. But one thing that you did call out that the NRA was ruthless in shutting down dissent. And I mean, they took Smith and Wesson and made Smith and Wesson capitulate to the agenda of the NRA. Yeah. How did they go about doing that? I mean, just how did they get so powerful? Well, um, and I, and it was very useful for me to study this as I went back through all my notes and files and, you know, everything and, and history about this. But what I, what I think we should take from it is none of this happened. It really started to coalesce after the 1999 Columbine incident. That's really where I, 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 I draw a line directly from that to where we are. We now know because of enterprising NPR reporters, Tim Mack, especially who's become a friend who's written a book about this, um, he, you know, he uncovered secret recordings of the NRA business meetings after Columbine. And just to remind people, the NRA convention was set, was scheduled to happen just a few days after the 1999 shooting outside of Denver, Columbine, Littleton, Colorado. And the NRA afterwards sets down in a hotel conference room, all the leaders, people I knew, Jim Baker, um, Wayne LaPierre, all these folks were in there. And they essentially said, well, should we should we be a part of the solution here? This looks bad. We've got dead kids. Should we talk about policy? Should we be a responsible citizen? Should we engage and see if we can work about work through policies that make this less likely to happen? Or, and here's where like a little light bulb goes off over their head. Could we use these incidents to drive fear, to tell people that the evil libs are going to come get their guns? Could we make up conspiracies that make people so fearful that they might start acting irrationally and voting irrationally. And they're sort of like, and this is like, this is before our national politics became all of this, but they're sort of like, you know what? I think that just that second one just might work. Like Mm. we might, we might be able to use fear to drive conspiracy. And so they opted for that and it didn't immediately take hold. It took 
honestly, really 10 years, 12 years until Sandy Hook, when Sandy Hook happened. And again, Wayne LaPierre waits a few days and then comes out and says, the only thing that will stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And they're going to try to take your guns from you. And they had perfected the system by then. And now everything on the right is fear, 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 fear about gay people, fear about trans people, fear about taking your guns, fear about, you know, good God, what else can you be fearful of? And so the key, you ask, how did the NRA do it? Fear. They drove fear. When you look at human motivation, there's a school of thought that says the two greatest motivators for people are fear and greed, and that fear is generally transitory where greed lasts forever. And I could see the the fear having to be restoked. And I think you make a really good case that, that we see that fear. And now we see that in retaliation coming from the left, splitting the country. So I've had authors on my show explaining how the news is presented and what Fox News pioneered as the affirmation programming that was then mimicked on the other side. And now we can't get people to talk to say, look, can we all come together under a common set of policies that are good for everybody. And we'll be talking about that in the next episode. But you had some things that you were very specifically trying to get done that got thwarted, like the gun show loophole, the development of smart guns, and perhaps some other things. Tell our listeners and our readers and our viewers, what were some of the important policies how did they get thwarted? Perhaps how things could be different today had we had the political unity and the courage to actually put some of these policies in place? Well, I use that. So gun show loophole or universal background checks is, um, is I think, is a good one, good one to examine. Um, that particular policy, which essentially, or, you know, this is a problem we have. If you buy a gun through a licensed firearms dealer, you have to do a background check. If you don't, if you buy a gun through some money, through someone who is not a licensed firearms dealer, you do not have to do a background check. So it's referred to as the gun show loophole because let's just say you have 10 guns to sell. You go down to the gun show. You're not a licensed dealer. You can legally sell them to the first 10 people you see, right? It's totally legal. That's what's referred to as the gun show loophole. That was exploited. Um, by the kids and their friends around Columbine 1999. And um, if you haven't noticed, it's a long ways past 1999, and we still have not closed or corrected the gun show loophole. Now, the policy that would do that, which is universal background checks, polls still today and has since then consistently polls above 80% nationwide, oftentimes brushing up against 90%. And I will I will assert this. I don't think you will find anything else that polls consistently for 25 years at uh, above 80, 80%. Uh, it doesn't happen. As I've mentioned on other podcasts, like ice cream does not poll at 85%, not, you know, so, so it, it just doesn't. And why is it that even after 25 years of something polling above 85%, we can still not get it passed? How is that even possible? It's so if you, if you don't believe that guns and gun policy aren't at the center of our national divide, I'm about ready to tell you why you're wrong. Um, this is the thing around which the right decided to build its totem, and it's a dangerous thing. So the, the right, the Republican Party now, the radicalized part of the Republican Party, 
think of it like a beam in your house. They look up at the beam and they say, yeah, it's made of asbestos. Yes, it is flaking off. And yes, over time, we are all going to get cancer. Maybe we should replace the beam. And then somebody says, hey, hold it. If we yank that beam out um, and replace it with a better one, the whole house is going to fall down. And they go back like, yeah, yeah, about, we'll just leave it. We'll just, we, we won't replace it. And that's sort of the, uh, that's sort of the way the Republican right looks at the gun issue. They, they know there's an issue. Um, Republican moms are just as concerned about dropping their kids off at school as Democratic moms are. And yet, because we have wrapped ourselves around this totemic, you know, symbol of power and division and fear, guns and gun politics, we refuse to address it. The second thing, so that, that's sort of the reality of it, I think. The other part of this is there is no fix, okay? We live in a democracy. Nothing in a democracy like ours is perfect. We're not, there is no like, oh, let's pass three things and it'll be fixed next year. No, it's not going to happen. We have guns in the United States. We're going to continue to have guns in the United States. A responsible democracy would choose to make things marginally better instead of choosing to make things marginally worse. Notice there is no perfect in there. There ain't going to be a perfect. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's going to be rational people that make decent decisions instead of making worse decisions. That's what we need to work towards. So things like the universal background checks, will that solve everything? No, but it'll fix a few. Um, raising the minimum age to buy semi-automatic rifles, will that solve everything? No, but it would have fixed Uvalde, would have stopped Buffalo would have stopped Highland Park. Um, all kids below the age of 21 that went out and bought an AR-15 and committed heinous crimes with them, they bought them legally through licensed firearms dealers. So you see, and again, will that stop everything? No, it won't. But it, it will dial back the temperature and the radicalization to a place sort of like I explained in the book back when I got into the industry when things weren't perfect, but there was an agreed upon set of norms and rational behavior. We still had gun violence and death, but we didn't count mass shootings like 1.8 a day like we are now. Um, and that's what that's what we have. I assert that's what we have to do. I find it hard to quarrel with your logic at all. And the divide is growing deeper in that you have some states doing what they call constitutional carry, which is no training or certification to carry a concealed pistol. And this has been a great tool for law enforcement if they have an encounter with someone and they have a firearm that's not appropriately licensed, registered, and they have a, a license to carry it, that was caused to get that gun off the streets or separate that person from the firearm. Correct. And I don't think I feel safer knowing that anybody can go in and get that firearm. And when we talk about uh, graduated licensing and other... Just a second, Rich. Like, here's an interesting little... And I think I mentioned this in the book. When I was at trade shows with all the firearms executives, um, almost all of whom are my friends, we would meet up you know, at some restaurant or some bar late in the evenings after the shows to yuck it up or talk about old times or catch up on our family stuff. And oftentimes, other executives, including me, would would joke about some of the folks who we saw in the trade show that day. And somebody would say... Would you be okay if like every single person you saw today was armed to the teeth when I was in a grocery store with your family and people would look at you like, like you were some alien. They'd be like, Are you freaking kidding me? Of course not. Like I would get my, I would get my family out of there in two seconds. So the industry and the participants 
No, they know it's not a good idea to do these things unfettered. Um, do they support the right to self-defense and concealed carry? Yes, but that doesn't mean you do it and remove all facets of responsibility, which is what you just, which you, and this is sort of the like crafting policy in the middle thing. Um, where we are headed now in many states, now 28 states, I think you mentioned with constitutional carry, um, they're basically saying, yeah, whatever. I mean, who cares about training? That That's not responsible. I'm appalled, frankly. And what is the role of private firearms in a free society? And, and, and I'm going to preface this by saying that, look, when you look at the history of disarmed citizens, it isn't good. And I Oftentimes, I'm struck by the illogical position. People say, look, the government isn't responsible. We're not, it's not populated by great people, and it's taken over our lives. Let's have that group, the only people that have firearms. You look what's happened in Australia during COVID, how they use the military to control their citizenry, and whether you can argue whether that was a good thing they did or not. But is there a good articulation of the role of private firearms in a free society? I don't have a, a particularly um, poignant descriptor here. I will just say so much of what is happening in the United States is kind of a first of its type experiment. I'm still, I mean, we, those of us our age kind of think, I mean, I often feel like, well, this country's been here for 10,000 years. And no, no, it's not. No, it's not. We're a couple centuries old. We're still experimenting in this sort of multiracial, multireligious, um, broad, you know, very diverse sort of democracy with, with a lot of freedoms um, is really an experiment. And I think guns are are one of, if not the penultimate indicator as to whether our experiment is working or not. I, I'm, I'm not. I won't really go to the role because I think I think the role or what's legal or not is constantly being massaged and trimmed and expanded, and that's part of that's part of the democratic experiment, right? Like, what where yeah. are the lines that make things? safe and and balance the safety of the rights of everybody and maintain the rights of uh, constitutional rights. And so I think this gun thing is a test for us because there is no other right that is so potentially immensely impactful to other people so fast. If you have uh, an AR-15 and a bunch of 30-round magazines, like you're just a minute or two from impacting, from potentially impacting the rights of lots of other people very dramatically, very quickly. There really isn't another right that you have that's potentially that impactful. And so we are going to figure out a way to deal with this right first, or I'm fearful that we will deal with none of the other ones either, right? This, this balance of freedom versus responsibility, like it's front and center right here on the guns, man. I mean, you know, like it doesn't yes, get any more dramatic than this. We either figure out a way to deal with this or um, if it gets out of hand, like, like the repercussions are not going to be pretty. I am in strong agreement with you on that. I think the notion that we have congresspeople like Lauren Brobert posing with her family, all holding firearms, my reaction to that is, what the hell? And who's voting for this? That someone thinks, gee, now I know who to vote for because I have a family holding rifles. And, you know, we do have a proud history in our country. The I'd like to say, Rich, just real quick, sorry, I think 
what pisses me off most about that, yes, Lauren Boebert, like, come on, she's a fool. She's an idiot. She's an irresponsible. She should have never been elected. And so it's easy for me to pass judgment on her and Marjorie Taylor Greene and anybody else that that uses guns in their campaign um, it, it, to, to intimidate people. Like you want to go out and show that you're a hunter with a gun or that you can defend yourself fine. But they're, they're, they're doing that Thomas Massey holding an M60 in his Christmas card. M60 is the gun of Rambo. It's a fully automatic gun of war. And he's cradling, cradling it in his, in his Christmas card. Um, I, I, there's always been idiots in politics. There will continue to be idiots in politics. What pisses me off most is responsible gun owners are so tribal have been told to be so quiet that they do not criticize that. There was not one single word of criticism about any of that stuff from the firearms industry. The people who are supposed to know and be experts and be most responsible. That's what pisses me off. Um, The people who know better are not shouting that down. And so I'm here to try to empower responsible gun owners to say, look, no, we, that ain't us. It, It, they're going to brand gun owners with that. If we do not shout it down. Yeah. And look, my experience with gun owners is that by and large, most people are pretty responsible. Yeah. There's millions of guns out there and we have a gun violence problem, but we don't have millions of gun accidents and gun crimes. Right. So obviously the vast majority of people who own guns are doing so responsibly. All the more reason to tamp down the irresponsible, radicalized, you know, by, bad byproducts. It's in our best interest to do it. One of the things in your book that I, I really enjoyed so much of the first person experience and talking about your travels, going to a sporting goods store or some other gun retailer. So you've talked to the people behind the counter that are doing the federal background checks that are helping people choose a firearm for whatever they want to do. I can only imagine I'm in South Florida and a 18-year-old kid comes in, barely past his birthday, and wants to buy the most powerful semi-automatic rifle he can get and a thousand rounds of ammunition. I can't imagine that the clerk behind that counter didn't get a bad feeling about that. Like, this can't lead to a good outcome. Am I wrong about that? Or are people put their emotions and their common sense so far down that it just doesn't affect them? Yeah, someone else, they had money. You pass the background check. And in this case, the kid that went into Parkland, he passed the background check because all the stuff that would have flagged him happened when he was a juvenile, which wasn't available to the background check. Here we butt up against this balance of freedom with responsibility. And if I remember correctly, I can't, I don't remember if it, that's Nicholas Cruz you're talking about. Um, yes, indeed. Yeah. Shooter. Yeah. Wrote in and put his, um, put his gun in a case and hopped in a backseat of an Uber and literally just had the Uber drop him off in front of Parkland high school and walk right in with it. Um, oh, and he had, um, he had been denied purchases. I don't remember if it was on that day for that gun, but he had been denied purchases. And I believe one or two of the retailers had voluntarily turned him away from buying ammo or something else previous to that. But on, on this particular instance, they didn't. And so here we have this balance of rights and responsibilities. Um, there are people who would say, uh, and they're in the firearms industry now and um, running even more radical gun rights groups in the NRA who would say a citizen who is 18 has every right to buy whatever he gun wants whatever gun he wants and whatever Emma he wants whenever. And I don't care if he 
uh, if he looks disturbed or whatever, he has the right to do it. Don't you dare infringe upon his freedom. And I say, well, what about the rights and freedoms of those kids in that high school? Do they not have rights and freedoms? And you see here, if you have, if you have rights and freedoms that start to outweigh the responsibility and the rights and freedoms of other people, we got a problem in a democracy. And we got, and and I'm here with a newsflash. We got a problem in the democracy, um, because th- th- that's a case where responsibility somewhere, somehow, should have stopped that. And for whatever reason, we have not put enough weight on the responsibility part. We put too much weight on the freedom part. That is a great articulation of that dilemma. And I again am standing strong agreement with you. Another thing you talked about in your book, uh, we talked about the gun show loophole, that there was a movement to develop smart guns that would only fire based on the owner having possession of the firearm. How good is that technology? And what did the NRA do about that potential? And I I don't understand why they'd want to stop it. I mean, if if it worked. Well, so, you know, smart gun technology, which is essentially technology that would limit the gun to only be usable or fired by some, by technically the owner, right. Or whoever is like coded to use it. Um, I don't know that it's perfect. There's a new company now that seems to have, um, a new system that seems pretty good. I don't know that the technology back then would have been great. My point in telling the story was that the NRA was so controlling about anything that might pop up good, bad, or indifferent. I mean, who knows? Perhaps if the first model was allowed to happen, innovation would have progressed so that, you know, um, so, so that was perfected by now. I mean, we have smartphones that seem to work pretty damn good and everybody relies on, like, you can't go three seconds without looking at the damn thing. So I guess everybody (laughs) relies upon them. Um, I, I, um, the, the NRA just didn't want any sort of innovation like that to happen to, to, to change, what they believed, what they held as the mantra for how guns should be used and produced. And, um, and, and I think that's very dangerous because the NRA, again, they cared about money and political power. That's it. And you know what? They got it. They got money and political power. By the way, your book does a great job of explaining how that single issue metastasized into political power and has led us to this deadlock and prevented us from having reasonable discussion about what good policies might be. And in our next episode, we are going to talk about that. I'm going to be asking questions, frankly, from a position of ignorance often, because I don't have your background into what the realities might be. But I do recall my ninth grade civics teacher, Lynn Early, talking about your rights and where you infringe on the rights of another, period. And he used to always like to say, you can swing your fist until it reaches the point of the other guy's nose. And I think that's what we're dealing with here. We have this group, the NRA, very powerful, very well-moneyed, intent on one side of that debate, but not thinking about the carnage on the other, And again, like everything else we talk about on the Common Bridge, this is a solvable problem if we have the political will. Both parties do benefit from the fact that it's not solved. They can each demonize the other and each fundraise off of it, yet we hire them to actually solve the problem. So perhaps in our next episode, we talk about some policy solutions. We'll get someplace. 
Ryan, as we come to our conclusion of this episode, your excellent book, Gunfight, anything about the book that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you'd like the audience of The Common Bridge to know about? And again, I highly recommend the book. I know this is an oft-repeated phrase, but I literally could not put it down. I stayed up late because it was... It was so compelling, and if you want to know something about the style of the book, it is very straightforward. One of the chapter's names is Speaking Truth to Bullshit. So if you want to get the unvarnished look, please pick up a copy of Gunfight, read it, and think about reaching out to those elected to represent us. But Ryan, any closing thoughts relative to the book Gunfight that's important for our listeners, readers, and viewers? Yeah, so I... I appreciate all your kind words about the book. And I did, um, I thought I had to tell a good story, meaning the characters, me and my family and all the, some of the crazy people that I worked with. I, it wasn't just to entertain, but it was to try to illustrate that real people are behind all of the situation that we're in. So as you know, there's sort of a explanatory wide lens about the numbers and the guns and the industry and a narrower lens on me and the characters and the company and the NRA and the people I knew. And it kind of alternates between those two. Um, the, the second thing I'll say is my goal with the book was to, if you, for people to say, look, if you want to read one book about why the gun thing became what it is in our country and how it's divided our country, just one book, like, it's a tough thing to talk about. There's lots of stuff that's been written and talked about, but this one book will explain to you sort of how we got here. That that was my goal. You did an outstanding job with it. And again, very illuminating. You did a great job informing and supporting the points and the personal insights are something no one could possibly write unless they'd been there. And thank you for the courage that you showed in authoring this. So with our guest today, Ryan Busey, we've been talking about his book, Gunfight. We'll be back next week talking about a couple of policy ideas, and let's join together in trying to solve this problem. And until then, this is your host, Rich Halpy, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app, where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.